Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 126. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on August 27th, 2023, in an extremely hot Austin, Texas. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism, more or less. Those of you who are all caught up have been waiting, patiently or not, longer than usual for this episode. As previously reported, my wife and I left Austin on July 22nd for a Sea America road trip, as we've come to call them, returning only last week. Along the way, we picked up my beloved mother in Charlottesville and spent two weeks with her and lots of other family in the Adirondacks in upstate New York, where I was able to pump out a couple of episodes. We left there on August 11th and took our sweet time driving down the East Coast to such swinging hot spots as Princeton, Wilmington, North Carolina, which is not to be confused with Wilmington, Delaware, the eventual destination of this episode, Charleston, South Carolina, and St. Augustine, Florida. Saturday last, we drove west to New Orleans and thence back to Austin. Total mileage, including a bit of local driving, came to 4,942.1 miles. Those of you who follow me on the website formerly known as Twitter probably picked up a lot of that anyway. Suffice it to say, it was awesome. This is a beautiful country, home to some really great people. We talked to a lot of them eating our dinners at the bar, which is how we do. It was, however, challenging to do much podcast work in the last few weeks, so my apologies. Along the way, we passed through the old territory of New Sweden as we rolled down Interstate 295 in western New Jersey and northern Delaware, which my wife, who is not terribly interested in history, learned all about, assuming she was paying attention to the flapping of my gums. She's not alone in this except for a few people with an interest in the arcane corners of early colonial America, ethnically proud Swedish and Finnish Americans, and people passing through Swedesboro, New Jersey, or Wilmington, Delaware, who are curious enough to consult their smartphone. Most Americans today do not know that something called New Sweden existed on these shores for 17 years, between 1638 and 1655. There are several reasons for this, but the main one is that New Sweden was commercially and geographically bound up with New Netherland, which would conquer it in 1655. The Swedes and Finns who had settled here left footprints in the sand, but most of those were trampled by the Dutch, who in turn surrendered their territory to the English only nine years later. Today, New Sweden is mostly a curiosity, a historical footnote. Its legacy remains in a few place names and that quintessential American building, the log cabin. Some historians today argue that New Sweden's greatest impact on our history was indirect, as some of the inspiration for the wave of more than a million Scandinavians who came to the United States after the Civil War. There was at that time a revival of interest in the history of New Sweden in Sweden, and that may have motivated some of those Scandinavians to come here. 
Regardless, much of what we know today derives from the scholarship of Swedish historians of that period, subsequently translated into English. Of course, the Scandinavians who came here in the late 19th century, more than 200 years after the Dutch absorbed New Sweden, mostly didn't end up in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. They settled in northern Wisconsin, Minnesota, and the Dakotas, having a tremendous impact on those states. Perhaps listeners in those parts can tell us whether the history of New Sweden is taught in the schools up there. Send me an email if you know, and we'll report back. For my money, the founding of New Sweden is most interesting as a creature of geopolitics, a reflection of the ambitions of one of Europe's greatest 17th century kings, Gustavus Adolphus, and one of our least appreciated colonial entrepreneurs, Peter Minui, the man who famously purchased Manhattan Island. Our story starts with these men. As anyone who's ever played the game Civilization knows, Sweden's greatest king was Gustavus Adolphus, sometimes known as Gustav II. I'll call him Gustavus because that's just easier to say on a podcast. Gustavus ascended to the throne of Sweden on October 30th, 1611, at age 16. The country he ruled was much larger in territory than it is today, encompassing most of the modern Sweden and Finland besides. But its population was only about a million people. By comparison, the population of England alone was four million, and Spain, the superpower of the age, was home to more than eight million. Gustavus also inherited three wars from his father, King Charles IX, including border wars with the Danes and the Russians, and a dynastic struggle in Poland. The Swedes were spread so thin you could see through them. Never mind, though. Gustavus would prove to be a strategic and battlefield savant, and without a doubt the greatest fighting king of the 17th century. As long-standing and attentive listeners know, Europe outside of Sweden was engaged in ferocious confessional, geopolitical, and economic competition. Catholic powers, led by the immensely wealthy Kingdom of Spain, had been waging war on much weaker Protestants for more than 60 years. The leading Protestant factions, including England, the Dutch Republic, and the Huguenots of France, had been struggling to survive. England's Elizabeth I, her brilliant privy council, and a fleet of privateers from England's West Country had fought a cold war at Spain's periphery, and the Dutch and French Protestants were the boots on the ground in the land war. After decades of peril, Protestant fortunes had improved considerably with the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588, which ended Spain's almost total control of the Atlantic. By Gustavus' ascension in 1611, the French and the English had established outposts on the eastern seaboard of today's United States and Canada, and the Dutch were close behind, following Henry Hudson's voyage up the river that now bears his name. These outposts, soon to be legitimate colonies, expensive and perilous as they were, had many purposes. One of those, among many, was to secure bases for privateering and piratical raids on the Spanish. Another was to prevent Spain from moving into the territory north of Florida. 
Eventually, the Northern Europeans were driven more by competition with each other than fear of Spain, but that day had not yet come. None of this concerned young Gustavus, who was hemmed in by Danes, Poles, and Russians. Spain was, for the time being, almost an abstraction, and the New World certainly was. That would change within 20 years, an incredibly short time in a day when ships and armies moved across distances over months and even years. This is not the podcast for recounting the exploits of Gustavus, and I am definitely not the person to do it. Most of what I know of him goes back to my wargaming days in junior high. Yes, I was a nerd before it was cool, but you didn't think that. Anyway, suffice it to say that Gustavus drove his enemies before him and heard the lamentations of their women. Over the course of his reign of just over 20 years, Gustavus turned the Baltic Sea into a Swedish lake, pushing the Russians, Poles, and Danes away from its shores. He would revolutionize warfare and lead Sweden to victory on the continent after intervening in the Thirty Years' War in 1630. And so doing, he would become the great savior of the Protestants of Central Europe, and Sweden would become a great power. Gustavus would, sad to say, die, leading a cavalry charge at the Battle of Lützen in November 1632. As Sweden's power had grown, Gustavus had begun to wonder why Sweden ought not join the other maritime powers of Europe, in trading over the oceans and perhaps even joining the land rush in North America. As early as June 1626, when he was only 31, he supported the incorporation of the Swedish South Company, granting it exclusive rights to trade in foreign lands. By this point, Sweden had come to appreciate Spain's immense power and wealth, even though the two countries had not yet faced each other in battle on land or sea. The Swedes were learning a lot about Spain from the Dutch, who'd been fighting Spain in one fashion or another for roughly 60 years. In 1625, Gustavus had commissioned an intelligence report assessing the extent of Spanish and also Dutch income from overseas, which was absolutely enormous compared to that of Sweden. Gustavus and his closest deputy, Axel Oxenstierna, apologies to all Swedes everywhere for my pronunciation, wanted in. They got to know Willem Uselinks, one of the founders of the Dutch West India Company. Oxenstierna and Uselinks began to look for investors and partners who would enable Sweden's new interest in overseas trade. When Gustavus died on the battlefield in 1632, his daughter Christina was not yet six years old. The country would be governed by a regent, conveniently Axel Oxenstierna, until Christina reached her majority in 1644. Oxenstierna and his pal Uslinks would carry the flag of Sweden into the Delaware River and establish New Sweden in 1638. But they could not have done it, or not done it as easily, without Peter Minwe and another partner in the Dutch West India Company, Samuel Blomart, pronunciation, etc., and so forth. Long-standing and attentive listeners will remember Peter Minwee. He featured prominently in our episode back in October 2022, The Purchase of Manhattan and Other Dutch Treats, 
which you might review if you want more on his background, including such fraught topics as the various possible pronunciations of his name. And we had become the third governor of New Netherland and had purchased the island of Manhattan from a tribe of the Lene Lenape Confederation in 1626. He had consolidated the colony at the two ends of the Hudson, promoted free trade with other Europeans, and generally presided over the growth of New Amsterdam, all while taking care to get along reasonably well with the tribes in the region. He was the most competent governor the new colony had had or would have until its last, a man named Peter Stuyvesant. Unfortunately, by 1631, Minui had been caught up in a political controversy involving New Amsterdam's first clergyman, the Reverend Jonas Michaelius, pronunciation, so forth. Michaelius, Russell Shorto suggests, must have won a contest for the moodiest, bitchiest resident of New Amsterdam. Support for this rather strong opinion is found in Michaelius's surviving letters home, which detail the perfidies of the people of New Amsterdam and feature extended tirades over the poor creature comforts available on the American frontier in the late 1620s. When the leaders of the Dutch West India Company divided over the best means for allocating and administering land and recruiting new settlers, Michaelius and Minui took the opposite sides in the debate. Michaelius turned his acid pan on Minui personally, accusing him of defrauding the company, and the directors responded by recalling them both to Amsterdam. In the fall of 1631, these two men who loathed each other sailed home together on the same ship, the Unity. It is unlikely that the irony was lost on either of them. Anyway, after fits and starts, including detention in an English jail, Peter Manui made it back to Amsterdam, whereupon he was removed as governor of New Netherland, roughly as Gustavus was dying in that cavalry charge. Since Minui was decidedly old school, he would not have needed me time or a sabbatical, you can't see my scare quotes, before he started to look for his next gig. Notwithstanding the passing of Gustavus, Sweden continued to fight its side in the Thirty Years' War. In the spring of 1635, while Jean Nicolet was returning to the St. Lawrence after his trip to Green Bay, and the Hutchinsons were building their home in Boston, Axel Oxenstierna traveled through eastern France and Holland looking for support in the war. On that trip, he visited both Amsterdam and The Hague and met with Samuel Blomhart, quite possibly having been linked in by Usalinx. Blomhart and Oxenstierna thereafter commenced a lively correspondence on the potential for joint Dutch-Swedish commercial operations. They discussed the possibility of trade on the coast of Africa and in North America. Regarding the latter, Blomhart told Oxenstierna that he really needed to get to know Peter Minui, who was still kicking around Holland. Oxenstierna engaged a Dutchman named Peter Spearing, who was already in service of Sweden, to go to Holland to recruit Blomhart and Minui to help with Sweden's overseas trade. This he did, commissioning Minui to write a business plan for a Swedish colonization project. Minui submitted his plan for a Swedish colony to be called Novo Suedia in June 1636, just as Roger Williams was getting settled in Providence. 
and it was read to the Swedish parliament at the end of September. Minwee's plan was still generic. It could have been aimed at the coast of Africa as easily as the shores of the Delaware River. In late 1636, Oxenstierna sent Peter Spearing back to Holland, where he again met with Blomard and Minwee. The three concluded that settling Africa would be prohibitively expensive, so they turned their attention to some part of North America not settled by the English or the Dutch. This was a tough challenge, because the English claimed everything from Virginia to Nova Scotia, and the Dutch claimed everything from the Connecticut River all the way across today's New York and New Jersey to the eastern bank of the Delaware. Even recent and barely attentive listeners will remember that the proprietary of Maryland extended, according to the Calverts and, helpfully, Charles I, all the way up the west bank of the Delaware River to approximately Philadelphia. Minwe, however, knew the area intimately, including that the Dutch had abandoned the west bank of the Delaware. It was an open space, a long march from either New Amsterdam or St. Mary's City. Minwe and the Swedes would head there. Blomard and Minwe agreed to put up half the cost of the expedition, either out of their own resources or from their angel networks, and Swedish investors, including the Crown, would put up the other half. Minwe would be the leader of the expedition at sea and on the ground, and Blomart would be the commissioner for it at Amsterdam. In February 1637, Minwe set out for Sweden to organize the expedition. He secured two ships, the Kalmar Nickel, meaning the key of Kalmar, Kalmar being a port city on the southeastern coast of Sweden, and the Gripen, meaning the Griffin. The Swedes were not at that point big shipbuilders, so it's not easy to find information about Swedish vessels of the day. But in 1879, Professor C.T. Udner of the University of Lund characterized the Kalmar Nickel as a man of war, which I did not find very helpful, and the Gripen as a sloop. Just as they didn't build many ships, the Swedes didn't have many sailors, and those they had were no doubt more experienced along the coasts of the Baltic Sea than in the Atlantic. C.A. Westlager, writing in 1988 in his book New Sweden on the Delaware, estimated that the crews were probably half Swedish and half Dutch, brought in by Minwe and Blomard of the Dutch investors. No passenger lists survive, so we do not know how many men sailed on the two ships, although Westlager estimates there were 60 or 70 total, and that a majority of the sailors were Dutch and most of the soldiers were Swedish. Fair enough. There's an interesting footnote in the translation of Odner's account from 1879. Quote, The only person, so far as is known, who came to New Sweden on the Gripen and remained with the colony was Anthony, an Angoland, a bought slave, the first on the shores of the Delaware, who served Governor Prince at Tinicum in 1644, making hay for the cattle and accompanying the governor on his pleasure yacht, and was still living in New Sweden on March 1, 1648. Back to me. Anthony must have been fairly well-traveled, having by some means made his way to Sweden, a country with no tradition of slaving, before then going on to the banks of the Delaware River. It's actually a shame there isn't more available to be known about him. 
Anywho, we have Dutch sailors, Swedish soldiers, supplies, tools, and goods to trade to the Indians. Some of the Swedes may have been Finns who would make up a good percentage of the eight or ten subsequent supply voyages. But since in the Swedish records, Finns had Swedish names, apparently even Swedish historians can't determine their nationalities. There was one Scot and a couple of Germans, including a barber surgeon from Prussia. One of the men, Andres Lukasen, knew enough of the Lanyape version of Algonquin to qualify as the expedition's translator. And, of course, there was Anthony the Angolan. The aforementioned Governor Prince was, of course, not along, insofar as Peter Minwee was the governor. Prince would come later, to the sorrow of any number of people. There was a long letter of instructions, probably composed by Minwee and approved by other authorities, that set the ground rules for the expedition. Westlager describes it in part, quote, Soldiers and sailors alike were instructed to obey their respective commanders and to have their weapons ready for emergencies. Stealing would be severely punished. Fighting and drunkenness were strictly prohibited, as was dice-throwing and other forms of gambling. Prayers were to be conducted morning and evening, and anyone absent from those services without permission was subject to a fine. Minwe also had in his possession unpublished maps of the Caribbean islands and the New Netherland coastal areas, which had been made by mariners who had sailed those waters, which the West India Company considered valuable confidential assets. Minwe had access to this information during his years of service with the West India Company, and he was acquainted with mapmakers and sea captains in Holland, from whom he was able to obtain the latest charts. Back to me. The West India Company had not, apparently, locked Minwe out of the 17th century equivalent of his email account when they fired him. HR departments weren't quite so on the ball back then. We do not have any direct description of the crossing, because Minwe and his journals would be lost soon enough. We have to rely on obscure references by third parties. Summarizing, we do know that the two ships left Gothenburg in southwest Sweden in late fall 1637 and had several delays before clearing the North Sea. The two ships probably arrived at the mouth of the Delaware River in early to mid-March 1638. Per the agreed plan, they headed straight to the Minkas Kill, Dutch for the River of the Minkas, a tribe in the area. That river is known today as the Christina, eventually so named after Sweden's young queen, and flows into the Delaware at Wilmington. Now let's go back to Westlager. Quote, Reaching the mouth of the Minkus Kill, where the Wilmington Marine Terminal is now located, but which was then extensive marshlands, the Gripen probably preceded the Kalmar Nickel into the stream, moving slowly to enable Minwe to designate the particular landing place he was seeking. As the river narrowed, he saw the site in a bend on the right bank, an outcrop of gray-blue granitic rocks, a shelf-like projection sloping down from the land. Having explored this area ten years earlier for minerals and crystals with instructions to collect several samples of each mineral that looks promising, then we could not have overlooked the unique topographical feature that the Indians knew by two names. Hopakaka King, meaning 
place of tobacco pipes and paga hacking, land where it is flat. The commercial importance of the site was the deep water, where the ships as large as the Kalmar Nickel could be anchored, the rocky ledge serving as a natural wharf where the ship's cargoes could be unloaded and passengers could walk from ship to shore. A wooden bridge pivoted to the shore could be built to swing to a ship's deck and used as a gangplank without the necessity of going back and forth in small boats to unload the vessel. There were other reasons why Menwe selected that particular site for the first Swedish settlement in America. He knew the Dutch had never settled on the Minkus Kill, permitting him to claim that the land was unoccupied by Europeans when the Swedish vessels arrived. It didn't seem to concern him that although they had not settled on it, the Dutch were familiar with the Minkus Kill and had already given it a name. Another reason for Minwee's selection had to do with a practical consideration. Personnel of the Dutch West India Company were then occupying a fortified trading post called Fort Nassau, a few miles away on the east bank of the Delaware River at present-day Gloucester, New Jersey. That's right across the river from South Philadelphia, and about 25 miles as the average crow flies from Midway's landing spot. Back to Westlager. Minway himself had a hand in building that post in 1626 as a place for conducting the fur trade with the Indians. Pelts accumulated there were taken to New Amsterdam and combined with pelts from other outlying trading posts for shipment to Holland. Minwee had reason to believe when he arrived in 1638 that since it was spring, a peak period in the fur trade, Fort Nassau would be well garrisoned by soldiers of the West India Company. If his vessels went farther up the Delaware and were observed from Fort Nassau, he feared they might encounter resistance from the Dutch and he didn't want to take that risk. By tacking into the Minkus Kill and selecting a site two miles within the stream, he could establish Swedish ownership and erect a fort before the Dutch knew that there were Swedes on the South River. By the time they objected, he would be safely entrenched. Back to me. The Kalmar Nickel carried in its hold the parts of a ship's boat, called a sloop in the records, but functionally the equivalent of the disassembled shallops that the English and French always carried on such expeditions. They explored upriver to confirm there were no European settlers to disturb the Swedes' legal position and to make contact with local tribes in the region. Having seen neither Europeans, good news, or Indians, Minwe ordered the Kalmarnickel to fire its cannon, knowing that the boom would attract the Lenape Indians. It worked. And through Lucasen, the translator, Minwe asked to confer with their chiefs, the proverbial, take me to your leader. He gave them gifts to validate his goodwill. On March 29, 1638, five Lenape chiefs, known to us as Matahorn, Metatsement, Elupakin, Mahaman, and Chiton, or Chiton, C-H-I-T-O-N, came aboard the Kalmar Nickel. According to the surviving document, they agreed to convey to Minwe all the land he needed to start a colony in return for a pile of the usual trade goods, including cloth, axes, iron pots, mirrors, and the like. They affixed their marks to two deeds, 
the first, transferred lands from the Minkus Kill south to at least Duck Creek, the mouth of which is today's Woodland Beach, Delaware. The Swedish historian Carl K.S. Springhorn, writing in 1883, argued that the southern deed stretched all the way to Cape Henlopen, just six miles north of President Biden's sweet pad in Rehoboth. The second deed purported to convey lands north to the Schuylkill River, which flows into the Delaware River just north of Philadelphia International Airport, although one source said it went as far north as the West Bank opposite Trenton, now beautiful Morrisville, Pennsylvania. There was no western limit in either deed. Several things might be said about these deeds. The first is that the five Lenape chiefs no doubt saw the complement of armed Swedish soldiers. They would not have known that they were perhaps the best in Europe at the time, but they would have known what steel armor, swords, pikes, and guns would mean if they came to blows. There's no evidence that Minhui leveled any explicit threat or even that he in fact would have gone to war. Not only was he under orders to maintain good relations with the locals, but he had a track record of doing exactly that when he was governor of New Netherland. But he also made them an offer they couldn't refuse. The second point is that the deeds were important to Minwe, not particularly because they gave him rights versus the Indians, but because they bolstered his legal position against complaints from the Dutch. Finally, the land deal was in all likelihood not a true meeting of the mines. As was the case with the purchase of Manhattan 12 years before and any number of other such transactions in early colonial America, the Indians and the Europeans had very different notions of land ownership, founded on the wildly different histories of their respective societies. Very briefly, the Indians who lived in a world with effectively infinite land and no shortage of food or fuel thought they were conveying the shared use of the land in question, which carried with it the promise of security guarantees, not its ownership for subsequent conveyance by the Europeans. The Europeans, who came from a world where there was no longer any unclaimed land and too little of it to guarantee food security, had wildly different assumptions about the meaning of ownership. To them, it meant exclusive possession. It is far from clear that even in 1638, the Europeans in general, at least, understood that fundamental cultural difference any better than the Indians did. Indeed, in this case, the locals would later assert that they had not conveyed the land supposedly transferred in the deed, in all likelihood a good faith objection, from their point of view. The land transaction, such as it was, thusly accomplished, Minwi erected the arms of the Queen of Sweden and designated the colony New Sweden. Now back to Westlager for his description of the first settlement. Quote, the fort Minwi and his men built at the rocks was made of log palisades, sharpened at their tops and set together vertically in the form of a square. Four acute angled bastions projected diagonally from the four corners, three of which were mounted with cannon. Except on the northeast side, the site was flanked by tidal marshes that provided natural protection. Entrance by land was from the northeast, probably via a narrow path that ran into the woods. The main gate opened up on the rocky wharf running down to the river where the vessels were anchored. 
two log houses were erected in the enclosure surrounded by the palisades, one a sort of barracks for the men stationed at the fort, and the other a storehouse for food, supplies, and merchandise intended for the Indian trade. Then we purchased a supply of bricks and Bothenburg before he sailed, and they were probably used to construct a fireplace and oven. Rough benches, chairs, tables, and bunks were probably made of hand-sawed lumber. Back to me. C.T. Ulner, the Swedish historian writing in 1879, speculated that they laid out a garden inside the compound and that the colonists would have acquired maize from the Indians for their larder, supplementing food they had brought and game they had shot. Long-standing and attentive listeners will recall that the English, Dutch, and Spanish, all coming from densely populated and deforested countries that strictly regulated hunting, were so terrible at killing food in the woods that they often had to hire Indians to do it. This was probably not true of the Swedes, who came from a thinly populated and heavily forested land, in that respect not unlike the territory they now occupied in the New World. Now let's go back to Audner, who recounts the unfortunate end of Peterman Wee and the conclusion of that first summer of the Swedes in America. Quote, At last, when all measures had been taken for the welfare of those who were to remain in New Sweden, and we began preparations for his return voyage, he left a portion of the cargo to be used in barter with the Indians, as well as 23 men under the command of Lieutenant Mons Kling, the only Swede who is expressly named as taking part in the first expedition, and Henrik Heigen, who seems to have been Min Wee's brother-in-law or cousin. It was enjoined upon these leaders, of whom the former appears to have been entrusted with the military, the latter with the civil or economical part of the direction, to defend the fortress and carry on traffic with the natives. These dealt chiefly in skins, and there still exists a letter of Governor Keefe's, the then governor of New Netherland, dated July 31, 1638, complaining that Min Wee, through his liberality towards the Indians, had drawn to himself the fur trade of the Delaware. Since Kieft, in the same letter, mentions Min Wee's departure from New Sweden, it's likely that this event occurred during that month. Min Wee sent the sloop Gripen in advance to the West Indies, where he hoped to be able to exchange the cargo he brought out from Gothenburg. Interjection. The Gripen stopped at Jamestown for ten days on the way south, looking to trade European goods for tobacco. Back to Odner. Afterwards, he steered his own course, also on the Kalmar Nickel, to the same place, proceeding censured by Blomart, on the ground that he might very well have put all the residue of his cargo on the Gripen, and himself have taken the shortest homeward route to Sweden. Then we arrived with his vessel at the West Indian island of St. Christopher, and succeeded in selling his merchandise there, obtaining in its place a load of tobacco. He was already prepared to sail away when he and his captain were invited to pay a visit to a Dutch ship, which lay nearby, named the Flying Deer. While the guests happened to be on board the foreign vessel, there arose a violent hurricane, quote, such as occur in the West Indies every six or seven years. All the ships in the roadstead, to the number of twenty, 
were driven to sea. Some lost their masts or were otherwise badly damaged. Some absolutely foundered. Among the latter, in all probability, was the flying deer, where Minwe was, for nothing more was seen either of him or of that vessel. The Kalmar Nickel, on the contrary, had the good fortune to escape and return to the island as soon as the storm abated to search for her commander, but hearing no tidings of him, after a delay of several days, pursued her voyage to Sweden. Such was the end of the enterprising and gifted man who, after having brought the Dutch settlement on the Hudson to a flourishing condition, became the founder of the Swedish colony on the Delaware. Back to me, briefly. For a long time, Minwee's fate was apparently a mystery to historians, including his earliest biographers. Nobody could find documents that described his death, and since both the Kalmar Nickel and the Gripen survived to sail again, even 19th century historians tended to put his death in New Sweden a year or two later. By the time Audner wrote his history, however, Blomart's correspondence had come to light, and Menwee's tragic fate became known to scholars. Back to Audner, quote, The Swedish vessel, Kalmar Nickel, bereaved of her commander in the way described, Returning home encountered another misfortune. Once more, she was battered by a storm, this time in the North Sea, and losing her mass, she was obliged in November 1638 to retire to a Dutch port. Through Blomart's assiduity, she was repaired upon the spot and awaited further orders in Holland. The sloop Gripen, which had been sent by Minwee to the West Indies, cruised a while in the waters about Havana, and returned again to New Sweden. Here the vessel took in furs, obtained in the interval through traffic with the Indians, and then left for Sweden, where she arrived at the close of May 1639, making the voyage from Christina to Gothenburg in five weeks. Back to me, New Sweden would be reinforced in the coming years and survive until 1655, a story we will tell in future episodes, maybe even the next one. This is a good place to stop, however, because with it, we have at least touched upon all the new settlements in the lands now encompassed by today's United States before 1640. Yeah, sure, we haven't covered every little detail. The Dutch had settled briefly on the eastern shore of the Delaware and had been wiped out by the Indians, and very small numbers of English were popping up along the coast at places that are today real places like Portland, Maine, but we've hit the important bits up to now, and we've made it into the 1640s, which I regard as a huge achievement. By the middle of that decade, the Virginians, Maryland, Swedes, and Dutch will all have gone to war with the Indians in their respective regions, and sometimes with each other. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a great rating on Apple, maybe writing a review, and following me on X, Twitter, or the Facebook page for the podcast. Until next time. <laughs>